you must have known at the time that you're coaching in a in a pretty different way than most other. Oh people. no, it, totally. And I was motivated to prove that I could win doing it that way. Doing it which way? By not ever yelling, cursing. I wouldn't let my assistant coaches curse them. We spoke to them like men. We treated them right. You could love them, put your arm around them, have fun at practice. You know, love is something that's not used very much in the game of football. And and but love is the difference. Welcome to The Well. I'm Hanson Mount. I am Brandon Edgens. And today I have a special episode for Brandon because, Brandon, I, I seem to remember that you've never been a huge sports fan. That's one way to put it, yeah. And why is that? Oh, gosh. I don't see the point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't see the point. Uh, it's I, My entire life is just something that's just like it's a gene that's missing. I just don't get it. Um, I guess I have a, a sort of a weird reaction to watching all so much emotion and effort being put into, um, you know, moving a ball up and down a field. And I, I, I reduce it to that level. I guess when I reduce, introduce anything to that level, it seems silly. Uh, but I can't really get, I can't get around that. Yeah, it's one thing that you and I have never been able to connect on, which was one of the reasons that this episode was so exciting for me. Because I think by the end of it, you might start to care a little bit more. So let's just kick it off. In the post-college football season of 1941, the University of Hawaii football program, still not a member of the NCAA, had something to prove. So they invited both San Jose State and Northwestern Conference champions Willamette University to Honolulu to play in a three-game series. At the end of the first game, in front of 25,000 attendees, a full tenth of Hawaii's population at the time, Hawaii had defeated the Willamette Bearcats in a decisive 20-6 victory. Hawaii was officially on the college football map. The quarterback for that first headline-making Hawaii team was an absolute standout that day. His name was Munkin Wong. At the end of the first night celebration, the plan for Munkin and his teammates was to sleep in a bit the next morning and then begin preparation to face off against San Jose. Unfortunately, there would be no sleeping in that morning. Because instead of the University of Hawaii making history, it was about to unfold around them. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Many of Hawaii's players, as well as those from the other teams, joined the armed forces that same day. Many would not return. And the University of Hawaii's football program would be halted for the next five years. Munkin Wong and his teammates would never receive their varsity letters. But over 60 years later, in 2003, the University of Hawaii head football coach decided to have a banquet for every living Hawaii quarterback, Munkin Wong being the eldest. That evening, in front of a crowd of fellow UW warriors, an emotional Munkin Wong was finally given his varsity letter. And he claimed that it was one of the best moments of his life. But this episode is not about Munkin Wong. He died two years later. He said that was the greatest thing he ever died, and he was buried in his jersey. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's about this guy, June Jones. June grew up in Portland, Oregon. He's Caucasian. And from a very early age, he was absolutely certain of one thing. I always had a passion for athletics. Um, I mean, I was going to be a pro in something uh, because I played baseball, football, basketball, all year round. But I finally realized that I saw Jim Plunkett playing in 1970 on television. He was 6'4 at Stanford, and he, and he was standing in the pocket and throwing. They were saying, this is the next 
way the quarterbacks are going to be tall pocket passers throwing. And I said, okay, I'm going to be a quarterback. So I started throwing a ball, throwing a ball, throwing a ball, throwing. I threw, I threw so many balls up against a wall. I can remember in the summers, my fingers would start to bleed. And in 1973, June received a football scholarship from Hawaii. Also being an avid surfer, he thought he was on his way to heaven. But to the native Hawaiians, June was just a haole, an outsider. Well, to be quite honest, okay, so, so, so just to make it, one of the first times, the, there was the first McDonald's was built on this island, uh, I, I believe it was over at um, the other side of Waimanalo. And I can remember I always surfed at, at Sandy Beach and, I, and Makapu, and I'd be there for hours. And so I remember standing there in line, and it was a long line to the door. And so by the time I got up to the front to order my dough, the, the, the lady behind asked the person behind me what, what, what he wanted. And I kind of, you know, kind of looked, and I, and I said, what, what, you know, what is the deal here? And it, 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 it was as if I didn't exist. He was also taking heat on the beaches. But June's a big guy, and he's not one to back down. So after a few fist fights, as soon as the local surfers saw that he was willing to stand up and defend himself, tensions suddenly disappeared. One thing about Hawaii and why I'm so attached to Hawaii is once you're accepted, it, it's like blood. But one thing that new blood could not account for was June's value on his football team. They brought in a guy that was a Hawaii guy uh, that wanted to run the option, basically. Well, I run, the, I run 5-2 in the 40, so I'm not going to play there. So I just said, well, I've already transferred once. I think I'll just hang in. So I hung in because I like surfing and I like, you know, the guys and everything. And so I hung in here for two and a half years, didn't play. I played 10 plays. You heard that correctly. 10 plays in two and a half years. That kid who threw so many footballs in the summer that his fingers bled had become the proverbial bench warmer. But what kept him around those two and a half years was not the football. It was the Hawaiian community. The families that kind of took us in because we're so far away from home uh, became our families. And, and the Whaley family was one. Uh, Ken Taguchi and Dot, who owned a service station on, on Waikamilo Road. Uh, just the, the local people just kind of took, took us in. But eventually June decided his football dreams just weren't going to come true. He moved back to Oregon and went to Portland State to finish his degree. And his plan was to eventually join his father's investment firm. But then the phone rang. And I kept getting a call from uh, Mouse, and Mouse kept calling me. Well, I had remembered him from his high school days at Grant High School. And he could throw the ball well. This is Mouse Davis. At the time, he was the head coach of Portland State. I told him no like five times, you know, and then, then the Canton game came on, then a couple games were starting to come on TV in July, and so August 1st I called Mouse, and Mouse, you still, I said, I'll, 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 I think I changed my mind, I'd like to come out. And when June started attending practice, he saw that Mouse was developing an offensive system unlike anything he'd ever seen. Because at the time, the first rule of football was that you won championships by running the ball and playing defense. It was a brutal game of brawn. But in Mouse's method, he put four receivers downfield, the fastest he could find, and kept only one running back. It was called the run and shoot. So more or less, you're turning a game of brawn into a game of speed. Exactly. If you watch New England, they're doing pretty much what we did in the 80s. But back then it was revolutionary, and it threw every defensive system for a loop. And for June, a tall pocket passer, it seemed as if it was tailor-made for him. So then he had great success at Portland State. And then of course, I became the leading passer in the history of uh, 1AA football. And went on to play pro football and, and have a very good career. June Jones played four seasons for the Atlanta Falcons. That was your team, right? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't care? No. Did uh, you even know they were called the Falcons? I knew they existed, yes. That was about, that was about the height of my, about the level of my awareness. Was everybody else at your school a, a Falcons fan? Uh, first of all, you're asking me because I'm from Georgia. Yes, I'm right. asking you from because you're from Georgia. Did I didn't you, care. Did you even know the Falcons were from, from Atlanta? Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. That was hard to avoid. All right. But football did not magically conform to the run-and-shoot offense. After his stint with the Falcons, June drifted into the Canadian Football League. But by that time, 
he already had his mind set on a new goal. I said, I got a coach. You know, in life, you know this, you better have a passion for what you're doing or it's going to be a pretty average life. In 1989, June found himself coaching alongside his mentor, Mouse Davis, for the Detroit Lions. Together, they began to introduce the run and shoot to the National Football League. I had guys within our staff, on our staff at the Oilers, when I was putting in our offense, looked at me and said, that'll never work in this league. Guys on our staff, okay? And I, I just looked at him. I said, well, we're going to do it. And to give you an idea of how this offensive strategy was received by the general public at the time, Brandon, I'm going to ask you to read um, a little excerpt here. This is Rick Tellender writing for Sports Illustrated that first season. The run and shoot, as all pro football fans are aware, is a half-baked backyard fire drill that features a wild-eyed, scrambling quarterback tossing the ball constantly to a gang of pygmy receivers scurrying over the turf like ants on a honey spill. The attack pops up occasionally. The attack pops up occasionally in the lower reaches of the football world and flourishes there briefly like a fungus until its practitioners play decent teams or its coaches leave to become shoe reps. It's the kind of thing pro coaches talk about over a beer or two, the way they talk about hang gliding or hair transplants, <laughs> things that are intriguing to virile aging men, but which those men would never actually get involved with. After all, they will tell you, the run and shoot is not an NFL offense. It's a sideshow. <laughs> See, I can tell that that's derisive. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so against all odds, June and Mouse put in the run-and-shoot offense for Detroit, and guess what happened? Uh, not what that reviewer is, suge is suggesting. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, they did better. They finished third in their division two years in a row. Nothing revolutionary, but what's important is that June had this tool, the run-and-shoot, and with it he realized that he could take teams that didn't have the biggest, highest-paid talent and turn their momentum in the direction of winning. I knew I could win, and I knew it was going to do something. So I knew I had a chance that to get hired and to, to better myself and better myself for my family. I lived full moves, 18 cities in 16 years. I mean, full household good moves. June began to gain a reputation as a coach that knew how to shake up an offensive strategy. He reached his goal of serving as head coach for the Atlanta Falcons before moving on to the San Diego Chargers as quarterback coach. He has an outstanding mind offensively. This is Ollie Wilson. Ollie is an NFL coach who worked under June at Atlanta before following him to San Diego. And he's talking about the contract June got offered from San Diego when their offense was starting to show signs of life and they had an opening at the helm. And the real thought was that June was going to take over as, as the head coach. Basically, it was going to be about... About six and a half million dollars over five years. But just before he was about to sign on the dotted line. The University of Hawaii approached him and just had gone through a season where they were 0-11. It was actually 0-12, 0-18 if you counted the losses from their 1998 season. And out of 112 teams in the entire NCAA, the University of Hawaii was ranked 112th. <laughs> This <laughs> is the absolute bottom. Anyway, that guy you just heard talking is Lee Steinberg. He's June's agent. And a lot of people think of him as the inspiration for Cameron Crowe's film, Jerry Maguire. I, I actually asked him about this. Cameron Crowe asked me in 1993 whether he could follow me and be a uh, fly on the wall. And I've never been able to walk through an airport or sit for dinner very long without someone yelling, uh, running up and yelling, Show me the money. <laughs> anyway, back to the point. Lee received a call from the University of Hawaii, and they told him that a head coaching position was opening up. Would June be interested? The offer that came in was about a third of what he was making with the Chargers. So <laughs> June kept asking me what I thought he should do. Steinberg told him, look, you've got the brass ring. You're renegotiating in success to continue coaching in the NFL. Conventionally, to turn that down so you can take over what is possibly the worst college football program in the country, and one that has a fraction of the resources of most other programs, and for a third of the money? Conventionally speaking, it's crazy. But. 
I remember Lee Steinberg saying to me, he said, June, ever since I've known you, you've always talked about being the head coach at Hawaii. I told Lee, I said, I, that's hard to turn down that money. But I said, look to your heart. Look to the situation that's going to fulfill you as a human being. And forget what the rest of the world or conventional thinking would do. He said, June, let me just tell you. He said, I, you need to go through the interview with the Hawaii people. So June took the meeting. He flew back to Hawaii. He saw the Wei Lee family. He said hey to Ken Taguchi and caught up on old times. He drove the Waikamilo Road, making sure to stop by the service station and surprising Dodd. And then it was time for his meeting at the University of Hawaii. Most of the guys that I was with in San Diego said, you know, there's no way that you're going to leave San Diego if he gets offered the job. Well, about five minutes into the interview, I knew that, that my passion was different. It was about Hawaii. It was about coming back here. And I, and I stopped the interview and said, if you offer me the job, I'll take it. So to the world's surprise. After this short break, we'll be examining what is known as the greatest turnaround in college football history. You know, you just create that atmosphere of love and, you know, love is something that's not used very much in the game of football. And, and but love is the difference. The love for the game, the love for the, your teammates, the love for your coaches, love for your school. It's, it's about those things. The game will win the game. Don't worry about it. Hey, Brandon. Hey, Anson. What's a different word for new? Novel. Yeah. How about recent? Cutting edge. Right. Okay, good. Modernistic, maybe? Futuristic? Yeah. Well, no, no, no. That, that, that would mean the opposite. Yeah, okay, never mind. Contemporary? Mm-hmm. I'm cheating. I'm, I'm reading off of the online thesaurus. I know. What the f***, man? <laughs> I'm looking like an idiot here. Okay, but all right. How about the well? We're new, and we need to get the word out. So the best way for that to happen is that if you like our show... Go to iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you download your podcasts, and give us a review. It would really help us out, and we'd really appreciate it. A good one. Give us a good review. That helps even more. Yes, good. You have to know what Hawaii is about to have success here. It was no surprise to Coach June Jones that the prevailing football philosophies of mainlander coaches did not work in Hawaii. Things worked differently in Honolulu. And one of those differences he knew was that Hawaiians don't care as much about status as they do about strength of character. Just like he was that young Haole defending his turf on the surf, June needed to come in strong. I told you there was 22 out of 24 on that first team, okay? You know who the two were not on that team? The, the all-Western Conference freshman running back of the year, and the defensive player of the year for the University of Hawaii, I kicked them both off the team of an 0-18 team. That was the two that weren't there. Why'd you do that? Because I have a, I have a rule. I said, listen, guys, I'm going to treat you like men. You're in college now. You've got to be accountable for what you do. I'm going to lay these rules out on one piece of paper. I'll show them to you in there. If, I, if you do any of these, that's a strike against you. And, of course, the two, two guys that are going to challenge you the most are the two that they think can't be the stars. Yeah, they right. can't be cut. You know, they, they, you can't do that with us. I kicked them off the team 10 days into practice because they'd already violated three of them. The rest of the team, whoa. So he had their attention. But June noticed that there was something else about the numbers that seemed off. Home game attendance was way down. And sure, that was to be expected at a school at the very bottom. But he also realized maybe there was something else at play here. They were at a bottom. Uh, they had lost 18 straight games when I got here in 1999, 18 in a row, thinking about dropping football. They had 19 players on their team uh, that were either Polynesian or from Hawaii when I took over the job. That's 19 Pacific Islander players out of 108. 
a real discrepancy when you consider the local demographics. You see, the prevailing philosophy of most college teams is that you cast as wide a recruitment net as possible to get as much talent from as big a population as you can. Mathematically, this makes sense, right? Yeah. But again, it was just not working in Hawaii. I don't think you could play at a high level unless the game becomes more than the game here because you're not going to you're not going to get the you know the the kid that USC wants kid UCLA wants kid Oregon wants if you recruit a kid from Kahuku and you sign him uh, there's going to be 400s aunties and uncles cousins everybody at the games so what you're really talking about is two things, it seems. You're talking about community and the relationship of community to morale. No question. But shifting a team's demographics through recruitment is something that can take years. And at a school that was thinking about maybe cutting their football program entirely, June knew he didn't have the luxury of time. Therefore, he needed to fix the relationship between the team and its community to get that much-needed morale going. And in order to do that, he first had to address the elephant on the field. So you're asking a kid, here, here, here's, a, here's a kid from California and a kid from Hawaii, a kid from Oregon, a kid from Utah, wherever, they're coming in here. And you're asking them to die for each other. But they don't even know each other. So I did a lot of different things. Uh, my coaches used to hate it, okay? But like I would just not even practice one day. I'd divide up into groups of, of 12 uh, and put a coach at each, each deal. We'd sit on the field and I'd have questions, you know, like tell, tell each kid had to answer, like, tell me what was the hardest thing you've ever been through in your life. Tell me what's your greatest time. Tell me about your family. Tell me about all these things. And we sat there and some guys, some groups maybe sat there for an hour. There'd be times there'd be guys out there for four hours sharing uh, all those things. And what it created was uh, they got to know each other. They got to find out about each other. Uh, one of the most unbelievable uh, Here, June begins to tell me the story of one player whose name, for the purposes of this podcast, and out of a respect for his anonymity, shall remain nameless. One of the fastest players I'd ever coached, and he was always just a little something not there. But then came the non-practice day, and the sharing circle. All I will tell you is that this player's story was one of the most horrific things you could imagine happening to a child. I'm going to get emotional as I talk about this. And if you think you understand what we're talking about, you probably don't. But more to the point. Twelve guys in this room are crying. And I finally understood, you know, what he'd been dealing with this whole life and how, how, how can I help him more, you know. He was unbelievable his, his senior year, you know. He trusted me. He trusted us. He didn't have any trust in anybody, you know. And by sh just the fact he shared it, told me he tr was trusting his teammates. He never had a, a family, never had anybody to, to do anything with. Now this was his family. By the beginning of the 1999 football season, the University of Hawaii Warriors were functioning like a finely tuned clock. But the first game, we lost to USC like 67-3. Okay, after a whole six months of telling the kids how what we're gonna do, how good we're gonna be, all these things, and da-da-da, and then we get our ass kicked, okay? And I can remember walking in the locker room, now what are you going to say to the team? And I can remember walking in there and going, wow, those guys were good. You know, and then Dan Robinson, you know, he, he was waiting for me to rip everybody's ass about not playing, you know. And then I just, I said, let's meet tomorrow morning uh, uh, and let's go over the film. And I took the film in practice of each play that we ran and we executed it correctly in practice. And then I showed them the play in the game and they screwed it up. Plays which were utilizing the run and shoot, a concept the team was still struggling with. I said, until you guys believe that what I'm telling you is going to work, and you do it the way you do it in practice, until you do that, we're not going to get this thing turned around. June had changed his players' hearts, but their minds were still stuck in prevailing football philosophy. And June already knew that conventional philosophies about anything did not work in Hawaii, a place with a fierce tradition of cultural independence. So he figured, okay, let's just look at all the conventional philosophies and then let's just try doing the opposite. I would do the random things. And I got still some of these things from Jerry Glanville. For the non-football fans listening, Jerry Glanville 
is a legendary coach that June worked under while coaching for the Houston Oilers and later for the Atlanta Falcons. You're familiar with Jerry Glanville. Oh, sorry, no. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll tell you a story. We're playing, we're playing Thanksgiving Day game, Oilers and the Cowboys. But Houston doesn't beat Dallas. I mean, that just doesn't happen. We're traveling now on Wednesday for a Thursday game. And so practice is basically a walkthrough. And I said, well, don't worry about it. I'll get Warren in the meeting. I'll keep him three hours uh, in the night. We'll go make sure we got all the, the stuff ready for the game. That night, Jerry has three country western guys come in. Travis Tritt, a uh, couple other guys he knows. And we don't even watch any film. We don't do anything. They sing and play, and we're just... Music, playing music for two and a half hours, live entertainment. And I'm going, what the heck? How we got a game tomorrow? You know, da da. We go out and beat the Cowboys. It's not even close. Okay, <laughs> I mean, it's not even close. And so, and so from that day forward, I said, okay, this this meeting stuff may be a little overrated. So June thinks back and goes, huh? Maybe I'll try some of that. At Hawaii, uh, I would choose a. a Maybe three times, like Willie Kay would come play for us or Henry Capono would come the night before the game. But all those team bonding, chemistry stuff, that, that, I mean, that's invaluable. And pretty soon, the players started to feel like, well, if the coach isn't worried, then maybe we don't need to worry. Well, what, what I tried to do before every game, I would try to tell inspirational stories about it might be... It was, a, uh, the, it, it was Aristotle said this, in order to be the best you can be, we must manage our behavior to meet the objective. Excellence then is not an act, it is a habit. Excellence then is not an act, it is a habit. In other words, we are what we repeatedly do. And so it doesn't matter if you're an Air Force pilot, it doesn't matter if you're a football player. If you're a receiver, you got to execute your technique faster and quicker than the opponent. And the only way you can do that is you have to be able to do it in your sleep without thinking about it. You can't think, I take this step, move this hand, move this. It has to become automatic. And it has to become what we call unconscious competence. You don't have time to think about it. In other words, go out there and do what you already know you know how to do. Do what you've already done thousands of times in practice. Trust yourself. Trust each other. Trust me. In the second game, uh, after we got our ass kicked, okay, we're playing Eastern Illinois, and they had a quarterback named Tony Romo. And I didn't know anything about Tony Romo at all, but, you know, going into the game, I know we should win the game. I mean, I'm looking at it. I said, we, we should, we're not going to lose to Eastern Illinois, you know. So Tony Romo has this down like 27-14 or something at half, okay. And so walk in the locker room. And uh, I walk in the locker room at halftime and I look at the guys. And I said, guys, we're not going to change anything. You, you got to just do what we practice. I said, everything is there, but you have to be able to take it to the game. I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to change the plays. I'm not going to do anything. You got to execute and you got to believe that what you're doing, we can beat them. In that tone of voice. And just in the same tone, tone of voice. Yeah. And everybody just kind of looked at me, you know. I didn't really know the condition of the team until the game was over against Eastern Illinois. We ended up winning 35 to 28 or something like that, 27. I was totally didn't really understand the depth of where these guys were because the emotion, I've never seen that kind of emotion ever before. Grown kids, seniors, balling like little kids because they won the football game. Just was there, a, was there a tone shift after that? Yeah, there was totally a different spark in their walk at practice from that day forward. They finally believed, hey, maybe we can pull this off, you know. So once we won that game, I, and, I, and I told them the formula to get to the bowl was we can't lose at home. We already lost one game at home. We can't lose at home. And then we got to win on the road at least 50% of our games. So we ended up losing, I think, one more at home, but we won all four of our games on the road. Suddenly, the University of Hawaii came out of what was now an 0-19 losing streak, and they began to absolutely murder on the field. And the home crowds began to grow. I wanted to prove that you could win uh, loving the kids rather than 
putting a foot up their ass all the time and just being negative. I mean, I, I wanted to be able to have a relationship with them, to be able to help them, you know, not just on the football field, but help them in their personal lives. A coach who actually wanted to work from a place of love rather than anger? When you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? Of course. He's one of those game changers, man. I mean, wherever he goes, he, he changes the culture and he changes the dynamic. And June wasn't just a great coach. He was someone who could see the underlying systems that actually made things work. One thing he does better than any coach, and I've been in the National Football League for 38 years, and he is better. He understands the media better than any coach I've seen. The voice you're hearing is John McLean. You remember uh, John? I remember John. Yes. And so John and I produced a film together that Brandon edited, and uh, we're all also friends. But John's day job is that he is one of the most respected sports journalists working today. He knows that if you are good and fair with the media, they will say and write positive things about you. And what better way to spread the gospel about University of Hawaii football is the media would take the message to the masses. I have never had a coach do what June did twice. He stopped practice to have his quarterback, Colt Brennan, come talk to us because he knew we were in a hurry to get to the Houston Texans practice because he knew the quarterback was going to say the right thing about the team. He's going to say the right thing about why. It was basically like a recruiting infomercial. The Houston Chronicle, the Los Angeles Times, Sports Illustrated, ES freaking PN. As Hawaii football awoke in the minds and the stories of the national media, Home crowds hit capacity and fueled their team. And the team fueled the media. Pretty soon, it was a self-generating story that wrote itself. And the underdog hero of any story has to win. One of the best coaching jobs in history to go to the University of Hawaii and end up the way he did that was just miraculous. At the end of the 1999 college football season, Hawaii had taken a share in the Western Athletic Conference, tying both Texas Christian and Fresno State for first place. But then they topped that by beating the Oregon State Beavers in the Oahu Bowl in front of a capacity crowd at home in Honolulu. Those guys would, you know, dance, sing together. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. In fact, when we went to play Alabama, my guys took over the lobby piano. And the people are walking in, and now we're standing watching my guys, you know. And, and you think about this. How does Hawaii play Alabama? We should have beat them three times. We only beat them once, but we should have beat them three times. Hawaii against Alabama. Unreal, but that's because we, we had that something that you can't put your finger on. Each game became bigger than just winning the game. It became uh, us. It became Hawaii versus the world. So when his players got an idea, June actually listened to them. First, there was the matter of the uniforms. Well, the players came to me and wanted. they said, Coach, if you can do anything for us, can you get that rainbow off our helmet? You know, and I said... Yeah, yeah, okay, I'll try to do that. And there's nothing tough about a rainbow. There's nothing, rainbows are beautiful. <laughs> but in football, the rainbows don't intimidate you. And so then I hired Lee Steinberg and a bunch of guys to come up with this, the H that they wear now. But it didn't stop there. When Jerry Glamble was head coach of the Houston Oilers before he went to the Atlanta Falcons, he wore black all the time because he grew up a fan of Johnny Cash. And it was this odd little twist of fate. June's former boss's love of Johnny Cash that had tipped him off to a very interesting fact. As it turned out, among the top-selling jerseys in any sport, the most common color is black. He made a new uniform order, and suddenly, June had a lot more jerseys in the stands and in the streets of Honolulu. 360 degrees from what they were, but the players love it. And it was almost like when they put on the black uniforms, it, it uh, transformed into kind of like being players with superpowers. And those superpowers were something June wanted the entire community to feel. So he had a new Hawaii football promo made. 
comprised of the team's most bone-breaking defensive hits. I got him to play it for me. Okay, so the story that tells is not just oh. not just we're here. That story is we're here and we're mean. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna hurt people. <laughs> and we, we, it was pretty good. Here's Ollie Smith again. I think he, he has a real good feel for what players need, you know, and like you say, the changes that they may need, whether it be like you said, whether it be in a, a uniform or the music situation. Ah, the music situation. The fight song was was uh, the Hawaii Five O song. Yes, you heard that correctly. The University of Hawaii's fight song was the Hawaii Five O theme song, and not the newer, punchier, sexier version either. It was the original 1968 version, composed by Morton Stevens, a white guy from New Jersey whose repertoire included such gems as Gilligan's Island. Those are all good songs. <laughs> You're so white. <laughs> And so I said, we need something more Hawaiian. So Mike Post, who's a very good friend of mine, who's uh, wrote the music for L.A. Law, Rockford Files, he's got Emmys, all, he's the number one music guy in Hollywood. Uh, I said, we need something that, that's, that's Hawaiian, you know, that's, that's Polynesian. So he said, okay, let me, let me think about that. So he hired some Polynesian dancers, some Polynesian uh, musicians, took a studio over here, and then... What, what happened was, he said to me, he said, June, I need some words. I need some Hawaiian words. So there was a Hawaiian professor up on an upper campus. I said, uh, uh, Nalu, I need Hawaiian words that mean something to go with this music. He, sa and sa he says, play the music. So I played the music, and he said, Eo na toa, eo na toa e. And so I wrote it down. I said, what does that mean? He says, it means this is battle. You must respond. And so when I <laughs> wow. when I printed that out for Mike, yeah. Mike just I, I could just see his eyes. That's it. That's it. <laughs> so he took those words and created the music. The players loved it. But even more importantly, this new recognition of Polynesian culture was perhaps the single greatest change in Hawaii's football culture under June Jones. I saw there's another video on here below that said the birth what the birth of the haka or what is the haka? Um, the haka is the dance that we did before the game that the NCAA didn't know what to do with. It was my idea that went up to Coach Jones, you know, if we can do the haka. This is Isaac Sopawaga, who played nose tackle for Hawaii. And Coach told me, sure, just talk to the boys. So Isaac got the team together and began teaching them the haka. You may have seen a version of the haka if you've ever watched the New Zealand All Blacks before a rugby match. It's a traditional Maori dance used before battle as a way of both invigorating their own warriors and intimidating the enemy. And I'm going to show you the haka right now, Brandon. Mm -hmm. Let me pull this up. mess with those guys oh, that's awesome yeah that is that is pretty intense i mean that's designed to intimidate i mean that's the history of that you know what i mean right like, oh it's, yeah i mean that's warfare they actually uh after the first year we did it the ncaa said you'd be penalized 15 yards if you do it we took the 15 yard penalty and we continued <laughs> to do it how long did you keep doing it the, the whole time i was there <laughs> really uh, i love that he took he took the penalty hey He's right, coach, you know, hey. Was there something motivational to you guys when he said, okay, give me the penalty? Oh, yeah, because, you know, that's, that's a penalty for coach. So for us, you know, okay, you know, that's, that's no more penalty. So that's a motivation for us to go back in on, on the field and just gain ground. And he took the penalty wisely. And I remember several times watching them do the hockey dance on Sports Center. Well, again, if you can get on Sports Center on ESPN, 
then you've got a chance to spread the word about yourself, your team, your island, your home, everything about it. I thought that was one of the smartest things that I've ever seen. But perhaps the most transformative and lasting change that June made while coaching at Hawaii came about because of his dedication to changing the culture of recruitment. He was convinced that recruiting more locally was the key to Hawaii's success. In fact, you remember that guy whose idea it was to institute the pregame haka? Isaac Sopawaga? Well, June found him in Samoa. So I'm driving to uh, the furthest part of the island. There's a high school down there called Fungatua. And it's a gravel road almost, you know, down and you're going by the ocean. And so I'm going down, Rich Miano's driving and I'm in the passenger seat. And, and I'm driving down and I see some guys playing volleyball. We, we set our net high, like at nine, nine feet, not eight. I see this big guy in a lava lava jump up and spike the ball. Well, I was 280 back then. I said, Rich, stop the car. We just continue to watch, watch him play. This guy's 6'5", maybe can jump like you can't believe, move, athletic. So I interrupt their game, and I walk over and introduce myself. I said, do you play football? I said, no. I didn't know football then. <laughs> I said, come on over here to, to the basketball court. So we walked across the street. There's a, a gym there. I said, can you dunk the ball? So he just takes the basketball one hand from the free throw, and I boom, slams it in. So I said, okay, I'm offering you a scholarship to come to the University of Hawaii to play football. But come to find out, Isaac doesn't have the grades. So I said, okay, I'm gonna place this kid. I know though what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna place him and then he's gonna get good and then everybody's gonna be recruiting this guy. So June still does the right thing. He helps Isaac to get into a good community college in California with a decent football program. In Isaac's sophomore year, he chalks up 31 sacks. A tremendous season by any standards. And sure enough, Florida's offered him, Texas has offered him, USC's offered him. I didn't expect myself that I'm going to be this guy that a lot of school was hunting me down. Now he's not playing football, just trying to get his AA in his third year of college. Okay, so I called Pat Bolin at the Denver Broncos. I said, Pat, I, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I got a kid you need to draft in the supplemental draft. I said, he's, he's unbelievable. And so they go down there. I say my prayers, and I told him, he tells the scout from the Broncos, I'm going to play football for June Jones. I trust the man that I signed for. So wow. I call him and I say, Isaac, Isaac, you understand, you can't play because you don't have your AA degree. You're not going to be able to come. So I don't hear from him for like five or six months. We go to camp August 1st uh, at the university. In walks Isaac Sopawanga, hands me his AA degree. And Isaac did go on to have a stellar career in the NFL. But June's recruitment skills didn't stop at the field. For instance. I learned a lot from June. Not by what he said, but more by how he treated people. This is Brian Kajiyama. These days, Brian is a professor at the University of Hawaii, where he teaches special education. But at the time June was coaching, he was a student. He was also the biggest Hawaii Warrior fan alive. And I will back up that statement in a moment. Brian was kind enough to meet me at a local shopping center in Kailua, to discuss his time with the Warriors. Brian has cerebral palsy and he speaks via an augmentative communication device. I was an instant fan of him and his team because growing up I dreamed of playing for Hawaii. Obviously God had different plans for me. I just kept showing up at practices which started at 7 in the morning. And Brian was consistent, often showing up earlier than the players themselves. The saying showing up is half the battle rings loudly in this instance. So finally, one day, June points to this Hawaiian kid in a wheelchair sitting in the stands, and he says to an assistant coach, Who is that? And he brought Brian into the office, asked him what his deal was, and then offered him the position of graduate assistant coach on the spot. Between classes, I would help out as I could, and it was fun because I was treated like anyone else there. And the team was thrilled because they'd seen Brian too. Some of them even knew him from classes. To them, he already was a part of the team, and June had just acknowledged it. Do you have anyone hire someone with no playing experience, let alone a disability like cerebral palsy? It's obvious June definitely has a different vision of life than most people. All told, 77 of June's college players 
have gone on to play in the NFL. And on that list are such names as Fuata, Fuga, Kanoa, Maui'a, Satelli, Sopoaga, Vekuni. June Jones went on to coach the University of Hawaii for eight football seasons, at one time winning 13 straight games and the Western Athletic Conference title in 2007. At the end of the 2007 season, June Jones left the University of Hawaii. And at that time, 87 of his 105 players were Polynesian or from Hawaii specifically. June Jones is one of the greatest offensive coaches in college and NFL history. When he recruited these kids, he offered them a chance and he gave them a mission of uh, there was only one way to go and he wanted them to be part of it. And June always had the ability to creatively think outside the square. Yeah, June Jones is not just a coach, of course he's a leader, but was more of a father teacher. I honestly had no intentions of becoming a teacher, but after being around June, I realized that I could implement the lessons I gained through football. But he's got a special feel for Hawaii. He really, he made people believe that he knew exactly what was going to happen. And, um, you know, they believed in him, they love him, and they trusted everything that he did. And uh, that's why they were successful. While I was editing this episode, I got an email from June, and it turns out he's going to coach again. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he got an offer from Hamilton in the Canadian Football League. I mean, the, the, to me, what was most fascinating in all of that, it really had nothing to do with athletics or football, the way I hear it. Um, I hear someone who has an incredible talent. First of all, someone with an incredible amount of love, an incredible yeah. amount of heart. Um, and with a, a with an incredible knack for community building, and that's extraordinary. Trying to gather a group of people into a team that works, you know, uh, like a like a well-oiled machine, so to speak. It's not just drills and practices and strategy. I mean, we're social animals above above anything else. We're hyper social animals. And he understood that uh, getting people intimate with one another um, is the key. And uh, that part of it is, is, is really fascinating. But I have to say, I feel like um, in some ways the whole story in some ways confirmed <laughs> for me um, why I'm not interested in, in sports. Oh, no. Yeah, it did. <laughs> because this is no, so much work. No, 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 no. Here's the thing. This is a great story, and I enjoyed all of this, and I liked it. But here's the thing: when I'm watching, um, when I'm watching a game, or well, first of all, I don't. But when it's on TV or one, I don't. I don't get any of that by watching. You know, guys run up down a field. You know, risking brain injury for a ball. I don't. I don't get that from there. And I always, and I've always thought that, you know, when I've sort of, and I, I do, cause I'm so missing this whole sort of in, interest in this. And I wonder like, what's wrong with me that I'm, that everyone else is so into it and I'm not, I, 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 I asked myself, you know, like, well, you know, I, I can't figure out why people are so invested in this outcome because I don't know any of those guys, you know? Um, well, that's what, okay. So that's what this whole episode made me realize is that, you know, if you think about it, I've always thought that sports were a replacement for that instinct in us to go out and watch the war. Right. You know, before, before you know, guns and bombs, that's a very recent thing where we need to stay away from war because everybody could get killed who's within viewing distance. But people used to go and watch, even as recent as the Civil War, people would go and watch our boys beat their boys. They'd bring a picnic. Right. And I think that sports part of its function is to replace that what's missing from our lives in that sense and when you think about it with 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 such a broad uh recruitment tactic 
in both college and even more so in sports when money gets involved, it has completely lost the sense of locality mm-hmm. sports has. And that is something that, that has never completely sat well with me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense because, I mean, back to the, the, the sharing circle and building community um, is critical. And if you're, you know, trading people back and forth all the time and one person's, you know, you know it's more mercenary, uh, then there's no opportunity for that. And then it be, does become uh, a kind of a rote uh, numbers only kind of strategy because the community part uh, isn't there. And I think I would be invested in those guys running up and down a field if I knew their stories, if I knew who they were. Uh, for me, it's just I, I'm, uh, I am missing out on the – I don't feel like I'm part of that community. Um, and I don't know those guys. So yeah. I'd, I, I'm not invested in who wins and, or, how they, or how they fare in the game. But I mean, I'm sure that would change if I knew even one, you know, <laughs> one, one guy who was a friend of mine out there. I would be invested. I'd be interested then. Yeah. Um, uh, but right now, currently, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any football player friends. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone's out there who'd like to be my football player friend, just, uh, so to just get me email in. us. Yeah. If, you, if you're playing in the NFL and you need a friend, <laughs> Brandon's here. I'll, I'll, I'm going to try this out. I'll be your friend. Until then, I'll keep trying to get him to watch a game. And I'll be in the stands going, hmm, oh, I hope that guy does well. This episode of The Well would not have been possible without the help of Coach Mouse Davis, Brian Kajiyama, Isaac Sopawaga, Lee Steinberg, Chris Wilson, and Ollie Wilson. Special thanks to John McLean for not only lending his time, but for giving us the idea for this story. It was one of the first we recorded. And of course, our deepest appreciation to Coach June Jones, to whom we wish all the luck in the world for his first season with the Hamilton Ticats. To find out more about the ongoing charitable work that June is doing in Samoa, you can go to junejonesfoundation.org. The Well is recorded, edited, and produced by Brandon Edgens and myself, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Extra music by Johnny Noble's Hawaiians and the Hawaiian Trio. And by Mon Plaisir. You can find more information about them at our website, thewellpod.com. That's thewellpod.com. And if you really like our show, you could help us out by giving us a review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. Have a great week. Where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to undergrad at Sewanee in Tennessee, and then I went to... Sewanee. Yeah. Where exactly is that? It's in the mountains in Tennessee in a place called Sewanee. We just call it Sewanee. Oh, and it's it's a little liberal arts school uh, with a football team, the Purple Tigers. How'd they do? <laughs> How'd the well, Purple you know, Tigers Suwannee, do? <laughs> Sewanee is the kind of place where, uh, where when you go to the football games, the men dress in coat and tie, and you, you sort of sip your whiskey, and every, you, every now and then you, you, you hear rumor that someone scored a touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like a happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.